politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow Paul Revere's to the CR podcast. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house. Unfortunately, literally stuck in my own house here with my four kids, my wife, and a mental breakdown over schools being closed. We're going to talk about today why it is immoral, illogical, illegal what they did, not just with the lockdown, but in particular, shutting down schools. Schools should be the first thing open, not the last thing. We're going to talk about whether we are making headway. Are we finally turning back the invasion, the onslaught of anarchy and tyranny of our government? We're going to talk about more serology, more science, more data, more more math. We're going to talk about the perverted juxtaposition of letting go criminals and criminalizing everyday Americans for exercising their civil liberties, constitutional rights, trying to earn a living. These are truly very trying and dark times. Um, Today I put out the definitive case, 2,000 word article, definitive case packed with data, observations, facts, why it was 100% unjustified to shut down the schools. I didn't know as I was writing it that I would have a meltdown in my own home and you know it's just been tough scheduling wise because I want to balance putting out the best information and doing the best work for my employer as well as trying to save the country and influence as many people as I can but also deal with my family and you know my wife had a total breakdown. We have these stupid half-baked Zoom sessions from the school that the kids are all up in arms from my wife, obviously with, with the newborn, you know, she's barely getting sleep where typically you would just sleep during the day. If you have a bad night with the baby, when the kids are out to school, but now we have three boys aged five to 10 home, two of them doing this stupid half baked stuff. No one could imagine a generation worth of kids, the psychological damage that they're going to cause much less the education damage which frankly isn't much because they don't learn much in school these days anyway, even in these so-called private schools that I send to, often like a public school. That's a different story. But anyway, this is all happening for one big lie. As John Kerry said about the Vietnam War, how do you ask the last man to die for a lie? Now, today, May 4th, this day in history, 78 years ago, was the Great Battle of Carl Sea. That was the battle where we turned back the Japanese onslaught for the first time. A lot of people mark the Battle of Midway, which occurred about a month later, almost exactly 30 days later in 1942, as the turning point in the Pacific Theater. But really, Carl, Carl C. is where we kind of turned it back. That's the first time the Japanese expanse, an offensive, was turned back. Carriers collided, met by accident, and we turned them back. I think we're at that point now. We are at that point where we're starting to turn it back. The protests are getting louder. The weather is helping. People are going out. But the real question is, when's going to be our battle of midway? 
where we downright go on offense and start really rolling it back. And to me, our battle of midway is going to be the schools. The schools have to be opened. I know, I know, yes, some parts of the country, they're going to close soon anyway. But, you know, where I am, they go well into June. And look, if you're shut for six, eight weeks, doesn't it make sense to add two, three weeks onto the school year? That's just me, but, you know, this needs to happen. Not only is it the, you know, psychological damage to kids, but it's also the parents that need to work. So all these governors are talking about, oh, let's open up workplaces, and I agree, and I'm happy they're doing it, but even the best of those governors are too scared to open the schools. It doesn't make any sense. The science is the exact opposite, as we will delve into in a moment. But again, I just want to mention, you know, a lot of liberals were pinging me when I mentioned this on Twitter. Well, Daniel, what, you're ashamed of your family? You can't be home with your kids, huh? Like all these people that probably never had kids. And look, you guys know, if you have three boys plus a newborn where you're not getting enough sleep, even the strongest family, that's a very hard thing to live with. Um, It's just we're not designed to live that way. None of us are. And, you know, look, if you have to do it, you have to do it. But they're making this seem to be like a holocaust. Like you have to be stuck in your attic like Anne Frank. It is simply not true. We have numerous more serology studies coming out. Thousands of samples, random samples. San Diego, Boise, Idaho, two more. Pinpointing the the fatality rate at 0.19. They're all saying, oh, they're not accurate. Well, why is it that they're all converging on the same fatality rate, even though they're different infection rates, but the fatality rate of each one is is the same one. Same thing. Same thing. And again, as we noted extensively in the most extensive scholarship that I think anyone has put out last week on this show, some of our articles, it's lopsided. It's really even the 0.19.2 is mainly a very defined population. If you're younger, it is going to be much, much less. If you're younger and healthy, it's going to be a fraction of that. It's going to be less than 0.01, an entire decimal over. And then kids, obviously, is nothing, pretty much statistically nothing. We have some estimates now believe that New York City they're lagging the antibodies lag for three to four weeks. So if you would account for everything, I saw someone did a nice mass mathematical equation. Again, this is just guesswork at this point, but it could be 47% based on existing results would have already gotten it in New York City. That would drive down the case fatality rate, even in the worst place, the worst anomalous outbreak to about 0.35. Still more than where we're seeing most other places, but not that much more anymore. Right now, it stands at 0.6 if you take the current math. But you see in Lombardy, turns out, they now think 61% got it. So again, the fatality rate is much lower. Now there, their healthcare system's a dumpster fire, and they couldn't handle even a, you know the hospitalizations of that because it's still a lot of people. I understand that. But we were not overrun. Fauci told us it was to not be overrun. It's over. It was, it's long over. We've been doing this for weeks. He lied to us. Fauci lied. America died. Not just the economy died. Our civilization, our civil liberties. 
cancer treatments. I mean, it's unbelievable. We have so much going on. The reports on the number of biopsies and diagnostics that have been pushed off and the number of people who will die as a result of that. You know, they had this drone flying around in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and the police department put out on Twitter, we're not spying on you. Stop saying we are. We're just trying to save lives as they were spying. I mean, you, could, you couldn't make it up. They, they, they tweeted out a picture of their drone spying on the city, and they say, we're not spying on you. And they say, if it could only save one life, that's the big line, if it could only save one life. Well, not only are they ignoring the exponentially more lives, greater number of lives that we're losing as a result of the lockdown, but now there is a growing body of evidence that the lockdown itself, even gross, forget about net, but even from COVID, does not change anything. Everyone is seeing the same pattern, the same results, more or less. It peaks around the same time, no matter what you did. The only countries that seem to have better results is countries that are small, homogeneously healthy countries that are small, don't have much travel, shut it off early, and they acted early in whatever they did. But if you're like America and most big Western countries that acted late and did nothing until you're late, it's going to run its course no matter what. The question is, how many other people are you going to kill and how much of your economy and your civil liberties are you going to destroy in the process? But you will not save a single life. And then even the countries like the smaller Nordic countries, Iceland, you wonder if they they precluded herd immunity. You do wonder if they're going to have a second wave. So let's come back in a year and see if they even had a better result, even from COVID. And then, of course, they destroyed their entire country. And that's what all these Israeli researchers and a lot of Israeli politicians are starting to realize. They had a great result. Not many people died. But now they realize it wasn't necessary. Half their country is unemployed. They destroyed their country. But anyway, there are great graphics that, that were, I, I mean, unbelievable graphics that were put out by this study. Um, I, I tweeted it out. It's not, it's not a peer-reviewed study. Most of these are being put out very quickly, but amazing graphics, hard data, showing that the peak of the viruses in Lombardy and all the surrounding areas occurred on February 20th. They already started falling February 20th before the initial deaths. In other words, what we're seeing is, ironically, the virus peaks well ahead of the peak of your crisis and you don't even know about it. So everyone reacts. Oh my God, we got to do something. It's too late. That's the joke of it. That's the joke of this whole thing. And we knew it. We said it at the time. But I want to share one other thing with you before we talk about the schools. Well, two things. So first of all, number one, Nobel Prize winning scientist Professor Michael Levitt, okay? Structural biology at Stanford School of Medicine. Stanford has really taken a lead. But this guy is not a right-winger. I mean, this guy is a global warming guy. I mean, he's not a right-winger at all. Nobel Prize winner. He said this was a colossal mistake. He said that the outbreak after outbreak, we've seen a similar, similar mathematical pattern, regardless of what governments do. Um, and, you know, basically it's the same story everywhere. 
no matter what degree of mitigation steps they took, they have the same pattern. Now, again, based on how much Chinese travel they have, based on their the health of their demographics, the um, success of their healthcare system, you're going to have different outcomes per country, but the story is the same. And that's the story. Quote, this is Professor Michael Levitt, Nobel Prize winner, okay? So this is not some right-wing blog. I think the policy of herd immunity is the right policy. I think Britain was on exactly the right track before they were fed wrong numbers, and they made a huge mistake. I see the standout winners as Germany and Sweden. They didn't practice too much lockdown. I mean, Germany did do a little bit more, but not as much as the others, and they got enough people sick to get some herd immunity. I see the standout losers as countries like Austria, Australia, and Israel that had a very strict lockdown, but didn't have many cases. They have damaged their economies, caused massive social damage, damaged the educational year of their children, but not obtained any herd immunity. Actually, there is one town in Israel that did, and we'll talk about that a little later. And there, there's where he is. But I want to share with you one other story that's been making its rounds. An amazing story. This is put out by Jeffrey Tucker, an American Institute of Economic for Economic Research. Terrific website, by the way. Remember I mentioned to you, I said, look, I think this is a little stronger for the most part than the typical flu, although not for kids. For kids, it's even less than the flu, and that has bearings on the schools. But it's more. It's more than H1N1, more than more fatal, more, you know, transmittable, happens quicker, lasts longer than some of these others. Although the swine flu did last for a while, but it wasn't as deadly. But it's not like the Spanish flu, which is the way we're acting now. It's more in line with basically what you had, the Asian and Hong Kong flus in 1957 and then 68, 69. And I told you, and again, try this experiment on people you know who are at least teenage, 20s, you know, old enough to really remember living at the time. Try this on, on if you yourself, try, try it on yourself. Do you remember it if you're, you know, in your 60s, 70s? Um, if you're younger, ask your your relatives or parents. I asked my father, and I said, my father was born in 1950. So, all right, maybe he didn't remember 57, but certainly he's got to remember 68, 69. He was in college. My father always talked about how he po- followed the world events very, very close closely after Goldwater in 64. And I said, what was it like to live during the Hong Kong flu when 100,000 Americans died? And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, I remember, you know, RFK being shot that year. I remember the oil crisis a few years later. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, here's an article. Jeffrey Tucker, American Institute for Economic Research. In my lifetime, there was another deadly flu epidemic in the United States. The flu spread from Hong Kong to the U.S., arriving December 1968 and peaking a year later. It ultimately killed 100,000 people, mostly over the age of 65, 1 million worldwide. Lifespan in the U.S. in those days was 70, whereas today it's 78. Population was 200 million as compared with 328 million today. It was also a healthier population with low obesity. If it would be possible to extrapolate the death data based on population demographics, we might be looking at a quarter million deaths today from this virus. So in terms of lethality, it was was as deadly and scary as COVID, if not more so. In 1968, says Nathaniel L. Moyer, a national interest, 
The H3N2 pandemic killed more individuals in the U.S. than than the combined total number of American fatalities during both the Vietnam and Korean Wars. And this happened in the lifetimes of every American who is now over the age of 52. I was five years old at the time and have no memory of this at all. My mother vaguely remembers being careful in washing surfaces and encouraging her mom and dad to be careful. Otherwise, it's mostly forgotten today. Why is that? Nothing closed. School stayed open. All businesses did too. You could go to the movies. You could go to bars, restaurants. John Fund has a friend who reports having attended a Grateful Dead concert. In fact, people have no memory or awareness that the famous Woodstock concert of August 1969 planned in January during the worst period of death actually occurred during a deadly American flu pandemic that only peaked globally six months later. There was no thought given to the virus, which like ours today, was dangerous mainly for a non-concert-going demographic. Stock markets didn't crash. Congress passed no legislation. The Federal Reserve did nothing. Not a single governor acted to enforce social distancing, curve flattening, or banning crowds. No mothers were arrested for taking their kids to their homes. No surfers were arrested. No daycares were shut, even though there were more infants de- infant deaths with the virus than the one we are experiencing now. There were no suicides, no unemployment, no drug overdoses. Media covered the pandemic, but never became a big issue. As Bohan Penchevsky in the Wall Street Journal points out, in 1968-70, to 70, news outlets devoted cursory attention to the virus while training their lenses on other events such as the moon landing, Vietnam War, cultural upheaval of the civil rights movement, students' protests, and the sexual revolution. The only actions governments took was to collect data, watch and wait, encourage testing and vaccines, and so on. The medical community took the primary responsibility for disease mitigation, as one would expect. It was widely assumed that the disease required medical, not political, responses. It's not as if we had governments unwilling to intervene in other matters. We had the Vietnam War, social welfare, public housing, urban renewal, the rise of Medicare and Medicaid. We had a president swearing to cure all poverty, illiteracy, and disease. <laughs> right? So it wasn't, it wasn't like the 1920s. You know, and he tries to explore what the reason is. But that's the story. That's the story. What happened between then and now? Was there some kind of lost knowledge just happened with the scurvy when we once had sophistication and then the knowledge we was lost and had to be refounded? For COVID-19, we reverted to medieval-style understandings and policies even in the 21st century. The contrast between 1968 and 1920 couldn't be more striking. They were smart. We are idiots. Or at least our governments are. It's Jeffrey Tucker there, American Institute for Economic Research. And again, folks, what I'm saying is I'm not even saying to do nothing like we did then. I'm saying because there are some novel things to this. I think the one difference is it does kill quicker. It, it transmits quicker. So you're getting the deaths you know, that was over a year. This is more over a few months. Although I'd like to study what the 57 flu is. That's a study of 68. 57 was a little bit more, I think. Um, it could be this whole thing's a farce. But at the very least, what I'm saying is there's things we don't know. So we don't know about super spread, super loads, what happened in New York City, why it's a little bit more. So you want to avoid that, avoid large gatherings, things like that. But beyond that, there is no reason for this. And obviously, the most indefensible aspect is the schools, is school-aged children. 
So let's go on to this, and you could see the piece later on today. But obviously, there's two levels. Number one is you have to understand that kids absolutely do not die from this. Now, when I say absolutely do not die, I mean in any statistically meaningful way, right? I mean, you could find an outlier of people dying from anything, anytime out of hundreds of millions of cases of things, but you don't upend your life for that. It just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, in all of America, according to CDC, there's three children aged five to 14 who died from COVID three and 42 who died in the age bracket of 15 to 24, but I would bet you anything, most of them are at the upper bounds of that age group outside of the, you know, the 18, you know, K through 12 education. Um, and again, I will bet you every one of them had serious conditions because it's not clear yet. You know, let's say you're very young, but you have serious conditions. How at risk are you? If you're older, you clearly are very much at risk. What about if you're a school age child? We don't know, but we could err on the see. That's where it applies the principle to err on the side of caution. So those people don't go to school. Okay. And those people stay home until we get better data on that. But I'm saying even when you factor that in, it's very few people. And again, when you see three people out of likely hundreds of millions of cases in the world, 50 million, well, maybe 30, 40 million cases in America, likely in my in my view, um, you have to wonder, you know, did they die because of COVID or they happened to test positive? And it's like these cases where they, they had other issues. I mean, people do die. You know, kids do have illnesses that they die from. Remember, 12,000 children a year die from unintentional unintentional injuries of accidents, not including car accidents. I don't know how many of them occur at school or whatever, but, you know, you're, you're, I mean, that's indefensible. Everyone knows it. Now, hospitalizations are, are slightly more. It's an infinitesimal number. But according to CDC, and this is important, they just put this out. CDC just put this out. For children 0 to 17 years, COVID-19 hospitalization rates are much lower than influenza hospitalization rates during recent influenza seasons. So yes, for school-age children, it is settled science from reams of hard data, not extrapolations, but hard data, that the flu, that this is less than the flu, it is less deadly and as we're going to see, it transmits um, much less and slower for kids than the flu does. So that's done. That's done. For good measure, you leave home any kids with certain chronic illnesses. Maybe they could have access to um, the video feed of the classroom if they want to do that. Staff that is older, you know, like elderly and sick, you have the guidelines, but that's like any business that were any essential worker. I mean, there's nothing more essential than schools. You're saying, oh, oh, it's okay to open Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, you know, so a school certainly should be essential. So again, you don't have the real older or, um, you know, unhealthy. You have to work around that personnel wise like anything else, but you don't shut down education for an entire generation just for that. And again, like we said, for middle-aged, younger adults that are healthy, the data is very clear. It's, it's, it's going to be either you know a half to one-tenth of 0.1%, whereas for kids, it's literally nothing. 
Now, the next thing is, well, Daniel, okay, that's fine, but they're going to go spread it around the schools, then go home and kill grandma. So now, first of all, even if that were true, again, it's like anything else, so you just have them stay away from grandma. I mean, so you take that precaution. I mean, I think it's better psychologically to just stay away from grandma than to stay away from grandma and not have school and all of its cascading societal, educational, economic effects um, for a generation. So that's, you know, that's obvious. Um, You could still abide by basic guidelines just to keep them away. But most young adults who are the parents of school-aged children they do not, they should be fine. You keep them away from grandparents or sick people. And again, if you have, if you're from a family with someone who has cystic fibrosis, I have a friend like that, or, you know, whatever, one of the parents. So then again, yeah, fine, keep the kids home for good measure. But we're going to get to that in a minute. It's going to be disruptive, like just like with the jobs. Not everyone could go back. But it's not an excuse for a complete shutdown. Stratify and shield. Florida, the third largest state in the country. There has not been a single death in the age bracket under 24. And there's only 87 deaths for the entire bracket under 55. And it's going to be closer to 55, obviously. But again, we don't have, most states don't put out this data yet. A couple do. I would bet you under 55, they all had underlying conditions. Um, this is a state, my friends, of 21 million people. Texas has 30 million people. There have been just 69 deaths among those under 60. And in many of the smaller states, it's zero. So like I saw in Idaho, forget about children, not a single person has died under the age of 50. Two people died under 60. And eight people died under, you know, from 60 to 70. So, it it just, I mean, it is completely indefensible for the children and then even the children's parents, except for certain circumstances, even if you, even if kids would have the same rate of transmission as everyone else. Okay, dealing with school children and their parents is a very manageable problem relative to the problem of lockdown. And again, it's going to be tailored state by state, county by county. New York, New Jersey are the hardest hit. But, you know, folks, even in New Jersey, the second hardest hit state, no school-age child has died. While 360 died under the age of 50. But again, I mean, they had, that's still a small percentage because they had a lot of people dying. And I would bet, again, most had underlying conditions. New York City is the only place in the country, again, where it's just everything is weird, where there is statistically significant numbers of younger people, but not kids. Kids, not kids, but younger adults who died. But again, they break it down in New York City actually by health conditions. And they found that only 85 people under the age of 65, meaning even if you forget about like 50, 55, 65, only 85 people, and most of them are going to be in the upper bounds of that bracket, died without underlying conditions. That's one half of 1% of all New York City deaths. But if you want to leave it closed in New York City, fine. But you certainly can't say for the rest of the country. 
But here's the reality, folks. We now have surveys from the UK, Switzerland, Denmark, Netherlands, Australia, and Iceland that there simply is no evidence of children-to-adult transmission, and there is very flimsy evidence even of children-to-children transmission, although it clearly does happen. That's the reality. Now, I want to just preface this by saying you have the Amelia Bedelia crowd. Like, you'll put together a whole thing, and they'll be like, You'll have 99% and they'll focus on the one. Like, well, it's not true. There was one guy. You can't tell me for sure that it doesn't happen. Dude, but you don't need to prove that. Because obviously, it's very hard to prove a negative. In order to have scientific conclusion, a, a scientific law, that kids do not transmit um, COVID to adults, it's very hard to prove a negative. You have to have a reams of, of, of data and cases and, it take, and, a, and a lot of time to conclude that. So, so a lot of this is preliminary studies. We don't have enough data to show that. But in most of these cases, they have not. They have they have traced it, and they have yet to find a single instance. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. But what you can infer from that is that if it does happen, it is extremely low. That much we do know already. Switzerland opened their schools after they failed to find a single case of child-to-adult transmission. Instead, they say it's actually adults who give it to kids, but then kids don't have a problem from it. They've actually advised that children under 10 can hug their grandparents. You know, just because they're talking about the social isolation, the psychological effects on, on, on older people. Hug your kids. Now, look, even if in America we're not comfortable with the Swiss study, you don't want to go that far. It's fine. You could still open schools and still keep them away from their grandparents. But my point is they felt com- com- uh, comfortable enough to even say that. Dr. Daniel Koch, he's the head of infectious diseases at the Federal Office of Public Health in Bern. Switzerland, children are very rarely infected and do not pass on the virus. That is why small children pose no risk to high-risk patients or grandparents. So the Swiss really took it all the way, and they're they're standing by the research, and they're saying it's almost a law. They do not transmit to adults. Now, a UK study, Rural College of Pediatrics, they found at the very least that children, quote, do not play a significant role in spreading the virus because they weren't confident in just definitively saying they don't, but in their study, they traced a nine-year-old British boy who contracted the virus in the French Alps and failed to pass on the virus to a single one of the 170 170 people he was in contact with. You have Iceland. Iceland, everyone's praising them. They have the highest rate of per capita testing. They have achieved very good results. Very few people died. And again, they this is Carrie Stefansson, who is the head of uh, the CEO of the Icelandic company Decode Genetics, which has been doing most of the testing there. Quote, we have not found a single instance of a child infecting parents. Again, there's a difference between saying we can conclude that it is impossible to happen. But again, like, <laughs> like the other side basically wants us to show that nobody dies, nothing's wrong, no one transmits anything in order to end a lockdown, which is killing Everyone destroying civilization, destroying wealth, destroying economies. And again, a weak economy is going to lead to more deaths too. That's not an option on the menu. We don't have that option of nobody dying. Once you let it in for months, 
transmitting quietly, which it clearly did, it already peaked before you could even do anything about it. That's the reality. But they are saying that they have not found, they did the most extensive testing, they have not found, quote, a single instance of a child infecting parents. This is the CEO of the company that has done the most testing per capita in the world. Preliminary results from a smaller Dutch study found that, quote, children play a small role in the spread of the novel coronavirus. The virus is mainly spread between adults and from adult family members to children. So again, they're trying to say that they don't even um, play a big role in transmitting it even to children among adults. It's kind of inconclusive. Australia, it's one of the only countries in the West that left most schools open for most of the epidemic. Eventually they closed them, but now they're reopening. So they have data. They had school going on during a significant period. Now, again, I hate to sound like a broken clock, but I got a little secret for you. So did America. So did all these countries. Because guess what? We didn't close till late in March. And guess what? This was spreading at the very minimum all February, but I think we, we know at least in January. So it's a joke. Again, two-thirds of my son's fourth grade in his private school one week in January were out of class. And a lot of them had very funny things that tested negative for strep and negative for flu. We don't know conclusively this is what it was, but that's the story. It already happened. Most are asymptomatic, and then some of the kids get like flu-like sicknesses from it. But they don't die from it. The flu season is worse to schools and transmission than COVID for children. Again, for adults, obviously not, but we're saying they don't transmit. So anyway, Australia's National Center for Immunization Research and Surveillance traced 900 contacts among kids. I think maybe it was like 18 kids who tested positive in schools. They traced 900 contacts. They found only two contracted the virus. Now, they don't say who those two were, but I would venture to say it could very well be they were kids. So that would mean kids to kids. At this point, the onus is upon the governments to demonstrate why closing schools and suffering all of its collateral damage is justified. If anything, assuming they do have a meaningful spread among kids to kids, this is the most low-risk, cheapest way of actually generating more herd immunity without danger of people dying. Taiwan never closed its schools that had the best results in the world better than even the other Asian countries that have similar demographics. Sing- Singapore didn't close the schools till very late. Hong Kong closed early on. They had similar outcomes. Folks, CDC last month put out a memo making that observation, saying like, yeah, you know, countries have pretty much had the same results. And I want to remind you, everyone has political amnesia, like one day is like a year, a month is like a decade. But in March, Bill de Blasio, of all people, adamantly said it's stupid to close schools. Okay, so the natural intuition that people had early on turned out to be right. Finally, I've referenced this a couple times, but I want to explain it a little bit more in detail. A real-life study that demonstrates that these extrapolation studies, these random surveys, are actually onto something about not transmitting to vulnerable people from kids. And that is as follows. 
There's a tiny town in Israel that any epidemiology textbook should have an entire chapter on, and they should study it in all these epidemiology classes and seminars for years to come. There's a town called B'nai Brak. It's a, it's a suburb of um, Tel Aviv. I found this by this guy, Yinon Weiss, a researcher. He wrote several articles at Medium.com, which got millions of hits. One of them was famously taken down because it was so effective. He's also uh, cited in uh, the Jenkins um, piece in Wall Street Journal about how um, lockdowns don't help. So he was one of the three who helped with the research. So he talked about, he has an article called The Passover Miracle. And basically, so Israel had a severe lockdown, which all of their researchers and a lot of government officials are, are seriously regretting. And they destroyed their country. And there's this town that kind of does their own thing. They're very, very stoic, um, just, you know, very, very religious people. Uh, they're kind of, you know, back back from a different century. But what's fascinating is it's an entire town of them. So you could find them in elsewhere, even in America. Um, you know, picture some of these groups of, I don't know, a certain sect of Mormons or whatever, but isolated that, that the entire town is composed of only those type of people. Each of them literally have 10 kids. I'm not kidding. Like the women, they'll get married at 20 and they'll have a kid every year until they're 40. Um, so it's basically an entire city full of, of young kids. They're very impoverished too. So they live in close quarters. So it's only 200,000 people, but it has the population density of Manhattan, the 10th highest, um, according to Weiss, the 10th most densely populated city in the entire world. So they, they were kind of going about their lives. Again, they're a little bit behind the times. They don't, listen to government that well and they you know they were flaunting the orders and they really weren't doing much and the government went nuts and the media went nuts and the media put out stories we need to nuke benabrock we need to drop a bomb on these people these people are going to get us all killed this is our lombardi it's going to turn into lombardi and then it's going to you know destroy all of israel and there was just a clamor so before passover the Israeli military literally put a blockade on the city. <laughs> Nobody was allowed in or out. So they just saw like, you guys are nuts. Go kill yourself. But we're not going to allow you to kill the rest of our country. So again, very densely populated. They weren't doing social distancing. You know, everything that they tell us, that would mean they're, they're, they're dead people walking. What happened? Passover's over. I guess they come in, the military try to come in with the trucks to pick up the dead bodies, dig the mass graves, and they find almost nobody died in the entire place. Maybe nine people. Probably Holocaust survivors like 90 years old with underlying conditions. Well, what happened there? Well, according to Weiss, and the Jerusalem Post also has an extensive article on this, uh, quoting some doctors from there, the median age, this is phenomenal, the median age of the entire city is 17.5. For um, context, uh, 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 our country is, I believe, 38. The European countries, for the most part, are much higher. Israel is definitely a younger country, and that, you know, in general, played a role in their lower death rate. I think it's 28. 
but this town is 17.5, okay? So it's clear what happened was the kids just bounced around amongst each other. Kids don't die. Not only don't kids die, but they don't really transmit to vulnerable populations either. And they were able to have their cake and eat it too and achieve, one doctor quoted thinks 50 to 60% herd immunity, and now they are completely open for business. The rest of Israel is opening up too. They're completely opened. Inside, outside. What happened there? It's obvious what happened. Again, there's three levels. Now, this is an anomaly that elsewhere in a normal city, you can't achieve level three, but the first two are true everywhere. Number one, you see kids don't die from this. Number two, they don't really transmit it, if at all, to you know, to, to adults and the vulnerable adults that would be affected. Now, the third level, which is more only applicable there, is that because such an enormous percentage of the population are children and young people, they were able to achieve herd immunity and then downright shield indefinitely the vulnerable population. Now, we're not going to be able to get to that level that quickly because any other place, you're not going to have you know kids constituting a majority of the city. So I do believe you need to shield and stratify to, to, to you know, at least for now, to, to play it safe with that, to just not do nothing like they did there. But nonetheless, when you shield the vulnerable population, there is no, clearly, no danger of kids dying and kids at least getting, you know, young adults and parents sick. Likely grandparents and sick people too. But what I'm what I'm saying is you can't count on that alone achieving herd immunity, but it will get us a big chunk of it. That's the way to do it. Again, folks, you're not going to hear this type of information almost anywhere else. I want to thank all of you for joining our Minutemen Speak Easy. We have a Facebook private page now, spin-off of Harwood Citizen Sanctuary. You you could go to the our Citizen Sanctuary page, email our team, press the blue button, and they'll invite you to the private page, Minutemen Speakeasy. It's our little underground bar where a lot of you have been posting very significant information, data, stories from your, your place. This is our technological Paul Revere's great ride. We got to alert people what is going on. What's the truth? This is an information war, and we got to win it. We got to win it. We have no other choice. There's a lot more going on. I want to play for you folks. I want to play the following clip of the Chicago mayor. Take a listen. Now, I've directed Superintendent Brown to order all police districts to give special attention to these parties. And this is how it's going to be. We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail, period. There should be nothing unambiguous about that. Don't make us treat you like a criminal. But if you act like a criminal and you violate the law and you refuse to do what is necessary to save lives in the city in the middle of a pandemic, we will take you to jail, period. 
Could you imagine that, friends? Could you imagine that? I mean, I've been waiting for years to have a big urban politician finally be tough on law and order. We're going to treat you like criminals. We're going to clamp down. We're not issuing warnings. We will arrest you. We will put you in jail. But no, the very same city, they actually, Chicago has record murders now, more than last year, even though everything's locked down, which is an astounding figure. Murders are up. They let go gun felons, parole violators, sex offenders, illegal alien sex offenders, left and right, right and left. But they're going to clamp down on political dissenters. And those who merely want to exercise civil liberties, unrestricted movement, and opening their business. You open your business, you get arrested, you loot the business, you don't. Especially if you looted it while wearing a mask, which most criminals do anyway. Philadelphia has now, has, now has a rash of this. This is the corruption going on. Where is this? I wanted to find this here from Philadelphia. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. What is going on? Trying to find this story. It's from the local ABC affiliate, ABC 6 News. They have such a rash of burglaries, they don't even know what to do. They say it's an epidemic there. Shoplifting. Merchants say people are filling their backpacks with merchandise, seemingly with no fear that the law will catch up to them. One merchant told ABC News, people are coming in the store, they're loading their bag, and they're actually telling us the law that they're not going to get locked up. They know it. Another person, I have three people quit last week. They they don't want to come to work anymore because of safety issues. It's a lawless city. It's the Wild West. That's That's what's happening here. Said Vincent Emanuel, treasurer of the Delaware Valley Franchise Owners Association. This is no longer a legitimate government. This is a tyrannical government. I mean, I'm going to list later on in an article today all of the cases, not all, but just a few, of sex offenders let go. And then and then one guy in California, some of you might have seen this, he was, he was arrested three times within 12 hours and let go. But she's telling us that if you exercise your civil liberties, you'll be locked up. These bastards need to be locked up themselves. It's time to end the lockdown and lock up. These vermin politicians. Not only do we need to end this unconstitutional lockdown, there needs to be a reprisal. There needs to be a day of reckoning. So that's one thing you can do at our Minutemen Speakeasy page. We're going to create our own snitch hotline, our own list of surveillance of those who are breaking the law, breaking the Bill of Rights, breaking our economy, breaking our mental health, breaking our physical health, breaking our hospitals. This is the most evil lie and the most devastating consequential lie ever perpetrated on mankind. But you know what? I believe we're at the Carl C. battle. Now it's time for our midway. And then eventually, our Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Okinawa. We will get there with God's help, with your help. Again, sign up for our Facebook page, you could tweet me at Conservative. email me anytime, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Please, please, please go to blazetv.com forward slash CR. Sign up for your your full year subscription to Blaze TV. $30 off, one-time offer, promo code Daniel. Folks, it's time to fight back. Until tomorrow, God bless you all.